In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. Thanks, Garrett. All right. You guys will pray with me one last time, and we'll uh, get cracking. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for um, just bringing us here this afternoon. Thank you for um, another Sunday, another cool day, and uh, a day that your people can gather to, to hear from you, to receive encouragement for those of us who are feeling discouraged, um, for guidance for those of us who are feeling lost and, uh, and a million things in between. So I pray that you would feed us um, as if we were hungry, because we are. And uh, I pray that you would um, not be present, because I believe that you're present, but I pray that you would make us known to it, um, that we would be able to experience that and, and feel stronger. Help us to uh, just receive a great hope, which is really what Advent season is about. It's about hope of uh, something good coming soon. And I pray that you would just help us in that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. All right. I want to say one quick thing, which was uh, I really love that poem used the phrase Holy Ghost instead of Holy Spirit. There's nothing theological behind that, me saying that. I just, I think Holy Ghost sounds great. I just, uh, I like the mystery of it. It sounds really cool. So, uh, poem, great job. Sarah, great job, too. Um, all right. So, I remember when I was a little kid, uh, and I've, I've told this story maybe once or twice before, but I figured this was a good time to pull out one of the hits. Uh, when I was a younger kid, I had one of the darndest times falling asleep. Uh, it was a thing I kind of dealt with forever, and for like many years, I had a really, really hard time falling asleep. Um, it, it all really came down to the fact that I was just a very fearful child, and whenever I had to go to bed, I was always very strategic about when I would go, because I knew that I had a brief window of time, whether it was like 8.30 or 8.45, I always calculated, okay, how much time do I have to force my brain to shut down before my parents went to bed? Because as soon as my parents went to bed, then the worst thing possible could happen for a child who is afraid of the night. The lights turn off, everything's quiet, 
and you're just left to the devices of your imagination. And my imagination as a, you know, I don't know, at five through 12 or 13 year old was lively and lively in the ways that it knew how to like torture me. And like the, when I remember, I remember, I remember when I heard the idea of like the sound of a house setting, I was like, oh, that's what that is. Because I was always assuming that it was just footsteps of people in my house doing Lord knows what. Um, and so I would always be very, very calculated and very strategic about what to do with my parents went to bed, but I always failed. And I would either not, go, not, not fall asleep fast enough, or I would wake up in the middle of the night, usually around like one or two if I was lucky, sometimes 11 or midnight. And I would find all types of things to try to avoid the fear of the night. I would turn lights on in the hallway, and my parents would be like, John, you can't do that. And I'd be like, darn. Uh, there were times when I would sleep outside the door of my parents' bedroom. I actually did that for a very, very long time. This is unlocking some feelings for me. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> But one of the things I did for quite a while, and something that I remember very distinctly as a kid, was I would sit at the, at the very crack of my parents' bedroom, especially because my mom was working graveyard shifts at the time. And I, would, I remember there was like a perfect picture of my dad sleeping in his bed, just a little shadow silhouette, and then there would be his digital alarm clock. Because my dad worked early morning shifts, and so his alarm would go off at 4 a.m., every morning that he was working. And so I, let's say I wake up at one o'clock, I would you know, sit for 15, 20 minutes, be tortured by whatever demons you know, Satan chose to throw at me that night, and then I would say, okay, I know where I'm going. I'd walk down the hallway, I would sit at the base of my parents' room, and I would wait. And I would just sit and watch that digital clock just move one minute at a time for hours. And then, at around, let's say, 3.58, 3.59, I would scurry back to my bedroom, and I would listen. And eventually, I would hear this beautiful sound, the sound of an alarm going off, the sound of my dad yawning obnoxiously largely and loudly. I'd hear the sound of his bathroom light going on, him, him getting ready. He would come out. And, and, and suddenly this, this beautiful thing would happen. He would turn the light on in the kitchen. My room would flood with light, and I would just feel this warm blanket of peace, and I could fall asleep. And that was a long time a part of my childhood. But this alarm that I would feel, and I can still, like, even to this day, even at the age of 31, I can still, if I stare off in the distance, I can see the red laser digital alarm clock that I spent probably days in total staring at. I can remember exactly what it looked like. And when I heard that alarm, I just remember thinking to myself, the night is coming to an end. Something good is happening soon, and I can feel safe again. And that was a good thing. And so when we look at this story of God among us or, or God with us or, or even Advent, what we're talking about is a time in which not just little kids sitting in their bedrooms, but the whole world, generations, millions, billions of people who had been waiting in darkness for a very, very long time, 
would hear and see and experience something that would let them know that something good was coming. That the night that they've been waiting in, tortured by demons of all flavors and variations, that the night was coming to an end and that daybreak would finally be there. That's what I think of when I think of Advent. And this is, in a way, the story of Mary. And Mary, I'll just confess, I think has become probably one of my favorite figures in the entire Bible for a lot of reasons. In the story of Mary, we see exactly just what we're talking about. We see the light breaking into the darkness. We see the curtain that divides heaven and earth start to peel back just about a thousandth of an inch. We see a sign that something good is coming. So let's start here, the calling of Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, if you guys were here with us last week, there's something really, really cool about the contrast between the story that was told last week and the story that we just read. The story that we told last week was very parallel to this one. It was an angel, actually the same angel by the name of Gabriel, appearing to someone and saying, hey, against all odds, you're about to experience a birth. And it's really amazing. Zechariah would hear this and, he would, and, and the child in question would be not Jesus, but John the Baptist. And Zechariah is about as different from Mary as we could imagine. He's an older gentleman, very pious, very religious man. He's a man with stature, a man with an education. He's married. He's been married for a long time. He lives in Jerusalem. He's part of the priesthood. Like he's, I wouldn't say like upper class, but in terms of religious significance, he was significant. Mary was the opposite of all these things. Mary was religious. She, she loved the Lord. She, she waited on him just as all the children of Israel did. But she didn't live in Jerusalem, which was like the New York City of the world of Israel. She lived in Nazareth, which is, I, I love the, the city of Nazareth because if you comb through the Old Testament looking for it, you won't find it. It has no significance in the story of Israel in a big picture. Galilee is this region above Judea where they are not respected and not thought of as being as righteous and good to go as the people who live closer to Jerusalem. Also, and we'll get more into this, Mary is not an old, wise, religious man. She is by most accounts, probably a 14 or 15-year-old girl. She's not someone whose presence demands respect or dignity in the eyes of the Israelite elites. She's just a little girl who lives in a nowhere town, who, uh, I don't know, doesn't seem to have the same kind of gravity as this guy, Zechariah. Now, the more that I study history, and some of you guys know I, I'm a really big fan of history. I like to comb through it. The more I realize that uh, there's a unique struggle 
in being a woman in historical history, you know? It's a great sentence. <laughs> it's actually what I wrote down, believe it or not. Um, but there is. There's, like, I, I just listened to this, uh, to this podcast series a couple days ago. I was telling my wife, Annie, about it, about um, the conquistadors from Spain arriving in, in uh, what's now Mexico and, and the beginnings of the colonization process there and, and their relationship with the Aztecs and, and the violence and the warfare and the, and the raping of resources and all those things. And I realized, like, there's a different experience depending on whether you're a man or a woman in these contexts. There just is. That's not me trying to, you know, wave some flag and, and earn your respect in some kind of way. That's literally just me saying it's clear. It's right here. If you were a dude in a, in a system in a reg, under a regime of oppression where someone's boot was on your back, it was going to be lousy because, of course, it was going to be lousy. But the things that women were subjected to the ways their bodies were abused in ways that men's typically weren't. There's a unique burden that women carry when they're under great oppression. That honestly, even as a dude, I didn't see until I saw more through the eyes of Mary. Because you think like, we, we don't have to look through history books to see the plight of humanity, we can look through the Bible because Israel has this history. It doesn't take a deep dive to see that the people of God, for a multitude of different reasons, found themselves enslaved, found themselves sieged, found themselves in war after war, many of whom they were not on the winning end of. They found themselves beaten down and oppressed by people who did not honor the God that we serve. And so they had no expectation of treating anyone, especially a woman, with any sense of respect or dignity. So you think sex slaves didn't happen? They did. You think that widespread assault didn't happen? It did. And who would know the true weight of oppression and brutality that humanity was capable of than a woman? Even today, we fortunately find ourselves not nearly in the same terrible time for something like this, but I mean, recently, my, my wife was teaching me about something called corner store privilege, which I had never heard of before, but she's basically giving me a hard time about, how, about the fact that uh, it's not uncommon for me at maybe 10 or 10.30 p.m. to just take a stroll down the corner and walk to, walk to a market, you know, maybe grab a beverage for myself. She said, I can't do that. In fact, I don't know any of my friends who can do that because... It's dangerous. It's not safe. It's not a risk we can take. And so who would understand the plight of not just the Israelites, but of humanity itself more than a 14-year-old girl? I mean, and it's, it's, it's remarkable, like, when we, when we see these big, significant callings happening in the Old Testament, 
We often see like proxies where there's someone, there's someone who mediates it. Like, when, when, like King David, the greatest king that Israel ever knew, he was not sent for. His father was sent for, and then his father got to David, and that's how things went from there. Aaron was the first high priest to, to one of the most significant roles you could play in the, the religious world of Israel. Aaron did not receive a direct descriptive calling from God. He got it from his brother. It would have made perfect sense. Nobody would have batted an eye. Probably would have been more believable if it wasn't Mary herself, but maybe her uh, dad. Sir, I would just like to let you know that uh, the Lord has some exceptional plans for your daughter, Mary. Uh, you should be expecting a grandson soon, Mazel Tov. Maybe speaking to Joseph, I mean, that did happen, but not right away. But it, it, there, there was no middle person here. It was just Mary. Again, just a 14-year-old girl with an angel appearing not in the temple, not in the wilderness, but literally her living room. Angel showing up. I, I think we have to just admire the fact that this is an incredible statement about God's proximity to those who are significantly voiceless amongst us. I think this is a big statement about God's heart towards the vulnerable and the overlooked. And honestly, I think specifically it speaks to God's care for women that in the story of God's people, that he had walked with men, he had spoken with men, he'd held you know, press conferences with men, but only a woman could carry the Lord to term. Only a woman could care for him as a little baby, raise him as a son. The highest honor that any human being could receive was given to a woman. I, I read in, in some, one, one of the documents I was looking through as I was getting ready for this that uh, millions of people, billions of people will be able to look to the Lord and call him father. But literally only one person in all of history will ever be able to look to the Lord and call him son. It just kind of melts your brain a little bit, right? The calling of God, the grace of God, and especially the presence of God was always experienced amongst humanity. All of God's people, everyone was meant to receive a calling and his grace and his presence. But some could look at the Old Testament and think, as a woman, I don't know if I see myself here in Mary. I hope you see that and so much more. I hope you see that abundantly. Now, we also have to acknowledge that the calling of Mary is not something that we can copy and paste onto ourselves. I think that would be irresponsible. This was an experience that she had that was exclusive to her, but also show millions and millions of people from different backgrounds of being voiceless, vulnerable, unheard, unloved, and specifically young women that God was for them and that God was with them. I love the last few interactions that they have between the angel and Mary. 
The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And at first she's like, oh, is that quite going to work. What I love is that she asks a question similar to the question that Zechariah asked, but Zechariah asked cynically. He was skeptical. He didn't buy it. Mary doesn't get scolded for this. The angel answers her. She says, but how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was also called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according, let it be to me according to your word. We talked about this a little bit last week, but there's such a beautiful contrast here. The guy who should know better, Zechariah, our boy, priest, lover of the temple, knows the scriptures back and forth. He hears this incredible promise of good news coming to the world, and he's like, I don't know. But this little girl with, with no formal training, with no, no, no time spent in the temple except just to bring forward these tiny little sacrifices that showed the faith that she had despite the fact that she'd been overlooked her whole life. Here's this incredible thing coupled with an incredible vision and her words are, oh, okay, sounds good. Let it be. Sounds great. Amazing. It's an amazing story. And like I said, the, uh, the calling of Mary is not something that we can exactly copy and paste into our own lives and into our own stories. But there is a lot of significance in what this type of calling does and what it does say for us. And honestly, there is relevance here. We are all, as Christians, asking ourselves, well, what am I supposed to be doing? What does calling look like in my life? And I think that we can draw some of Mary's story, and apply that to ourselves. Many of us will find ourselves saying, all right, I, I, I accept what God has, has, has offered me. I, I'm willing to put my faith in Jesus, but I just don't know what my next step is. What am I supposed to fill my time and my life, and what am I supposed to devote my energy into? Let me get a few things here. The first is, one of the first things we see to Gabriel, the angel, when he appears before Mary is he says, you have found favor with God. What an amazing thing to hear. If I see some supernatural angelic being appear to me in private, I'm just going to automatically think of all the things I did wrong and the judgment that is probably going to come upon me. But instead, he immediately alleviates her concerns and says, hey, hold on, before, you, before your anxiety goes crazy, let me just let you know, you have found favor in God. In other words, God cares for you and you don't have anything to worry about. You don't need to be afraid. I'm here with good news. 
So that's helpful for us because when we think of what it means to live into a calling that God is moving us towards, the foundation of it is that we have first and foremost found favor in the eyes of God. Why is that important? Well, because I think a lot of people, either consciously or unconsciously, will think to themselves, well, I, I, I can't find worth or value until I start living out of this calling that I still haven't even found yet. How will God love me and say, well done, good and faithful servant, until I can unearth this crazy, fulfilling, mind-altering calling that I have to find? The simple truth and the beautiful truth is that if you have put that tiny mustard seed of faith in Christ and believed in the good days and the good times and the good news to come, we can take faith that he's already found joy in us. He's already pleased in us. Not because we're amazing and we've done everything a thousand percent right, but because in a story that we probably won't be able to get to today, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, died on a cross, carried our sins, and now we can stand before God without blemish. We don't need to use a calling to make ourselves clean before God. That's an insult to everything Jesus did for us. We're good. Our faith makes us righteous, and God has even played a role in giving us that faith. So when we start to ask these questions of what am I supposed to do, we should start with, we have found that favor from God. God has called us good and righteous in his sight, not because we're, we're, we're rocking and rolling and doing everything right, but because his love started everything. Second, I also think we need to consider that our Callings don't have to be spectacular to be meaningful. What happens to Mary is amazing. And I think a part of what makes it amazing is the fact that it's very uncommon for an angel to show up in someone's living room and say, let me just let you know what your life is about to look like. That's an awesome thing to happen, but it's also probably not going to happen for most of us. And that's okay. We don't have to look for tremendous spectacle. And that's not to say that God won't use grand means of communicating to us. That's possible. And honestly, if it does, we shouldn't turn a blind eye to that. But we don't need big, spectacular things and signs and miracles and, you know, the stars writing out messages for us for us to figure out what it is we're supposed to be doing. At the end of the day, one of the basic things we can look back to when it comes to the idea of calling is thinking to the book of 1 Peter where he says that all believers are part of a holy priesthood. Now, the priest was someone who kind of stood in the gap as a mediator between God and the world that we exist in, specifically his people. So that doesn't mean that we're supposed to be doing priestly rituals and, you know, lighting incense and this and that. It means that as part of a priestly nation, that we are kind of inheriting this good news, this, like we've called it, this, this rushing wave of the, of the kingdom of God. We get to play a role in that. And I think something that should be encouraging is that often the place that we're meant to be 
is the place that we are. And it's, it's why I sometimes chuckle when I think that there's, you know, some who really struggle with this, like, golly, what am I, what am I supposed to be doing? Just like living in agony. Like I, I imagine like I've, you know, imagine your, your work, you, you're at this office that you've been working at for five years and you have a coworker who's been with you since the first day. You guys were in orientation together. And he shows up in the, in the break room and he's just distraught. And he's like, oh, man, I just, I just don't know what my job is. Like, I just, I just don't know what I'm supposed to spend 40 hours a week doing. Like, I just don't know what to do between the hours of 8 and 5 with an hour-long lunch break. And it's like, you're at your job. Like, you're here. This is what you're supposed to be doing. You've been here. You've been doing this. If we're looking for people who are broken, that we should be working and, and, and coming alongside, we don't have to fly across the worlds to do that. Although uh, there are some times <laughs> when, you, when you should do that. And we'll get to that. <laughs> Down with missionaries. Rah! No, just kidding. Just kidding. But you don't have to. You don't have to fly across the world. And honestly, something that I've realized as I've tried to look, lean more into this is that the people who really genuinely need a word of kindness, someone who can show them the grace and the love of God, someone who can spend a little bit of time with those who really need it, they're actually a lot closer than we think. And for me specifically, they're in my family. The people who need me the most are the people who generally share my genetics. And also the people who, just by reality of trauma and, you know, dysfunction, are the people I would least like to be spending time with. But, I mean, I don't know. Is, is God calling on us to go on, uh, you know, several thousand dollar trips to find people to, you know, hand out apples and orange juice to? Or is maybe God calling us to show grace and kindness to the people who are really close to us, but who we just don't feel like caring for. Honestly, that's maybe the bummer about callings is that it's, the reality is that it's way less exciting than we think, but it's also that much more meaningful. Because rarely will people write a biography about somebody who serves as a proper loving missionary and an ambassador of Christ to their nephews whose uh, mom is just a little emotionally distant. Rarely will people, you know, speak in big lectures about somebody who faithfully just spends time with a sibling who's been having a really rough go of it lately or thinks to spend some extra time with that coworker who nobody really likes, but you also think is super, super lonely when they go home every night at five. So that's the truth about callings is that everyone has one. And it's honestly probably a lot closer than you think it is. Sometimes you got to fly on a plane to the Amazon and help people who are super in need and need the gospel. And that's a beautiful thing. And honestly, I, I think that if you feel this, this greater calling for something like mission work or, or ministry or the pastor or something like that, that should be something that is, uh, that is prayed over, but also where you seek out external support, which means you got to talk to people, which means you got to ask specifically the leaders in your church. Is this something I should be doing? 
Otherwise, you get people who just go rogue and, and do whatever they want and then, you know, cause a ton of spiritual abuse because they thought that their charismatic personality made them a pastor. But I'm, I'm going to, that's a soapbox I don't need to get close to. Whew. And, and I'll, I'll say because it's relevant. Uh, we had a members meeting a couple weeks ago. We've got deacon and elder nominations that are going to be shot out into the ether pretty soon. This is a type of calling. This is a type of calling that should be prayed over, that should be deeply considered, that should be consulted over with leaders and people who you trust. It shouldn't be dismissed as inconsequential. So we can find a little bit of that. But honestly, if we, if we think hard and we try to return back to this story of Mary, we know that calling is by no means a guarantee or even a hopeful promise of smooth sailing. So that leads me to my, my final point. We did the, the calling of Mary. We just did the calling of everyone else. And now we're going to do the calling of disruption. I'm going to read from a passage that's not what Garrett read earlier, but is still very relevant. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. Jesus said this, if you guys are familiar, as he was dying, as he was being crucified. He was on a cross when he said this. So when we, call, when we talk about this idea that the calling includes a disruption, there's, there's something difficult about it. Like we've spoken about the, the tearing of the fabric that, that exists between heaven and earth. Well, tearing is a violent action, and we will experience some of that violence. The kingdom of God itself, like we said, that, that rushing wave of good news and healing and, and, and restoring all that was broken, it, the kingdom of God itself is sort of a kingdom of disruption by default. Because our world is kind of like a, a bone that was broken and then reformed, but in, a, in an awkward and janky way where it's not only physically like un, unseemly, but it's also not able to fulfill the purpose that it was made for. I confirmed this with Fiona earlier who told me, John, I'm not in orthopedics, but I said, I just need, your, I just need an answer, Fiona. Tell me I'm not going to spit some medical nonsense here. If that happens, if you have a bone that's broken and reforms in, a neg in, a, in an unhealthy way, it can't just be guided back. It has to be rebroken. It's not a breaking of punishment. It's not a breaking that happens because of misuse. It's the breaking that leads to healing, but it's breaking nevertheless. And we know that everyone who comes to Christ in some way, needs to be broken. Our pride needs to be broken. Our loves need to be broken. Not because they're 100% bad through and through, just like you wouldn't break the arm just to cut it off. They're broken because they need to be reset. We're broken because we need to be reset and recalibrated and moved towards healing to use the, the pieces that exist, but in a way that they're supposed to be used. It's moving towards healing, which is great, but it's still painful, which is not great. 
the calling and the life of Mary presents that perfectly. When Mary receives her calling, she's not just obedient. A few verses later from the story that we didn't read, she sings a song. She's overflowing with joy. She's overflowing with worship because she, she sees God as someone who is near. And she sees God as someone who's going to rescue his people in a tremendous way. And he is. And she would raise Jesus as a little boy and she would teach him and she would love him and she would care for him and then she would experience something extraordinary. She would experience something that we would all pray that parents would never have to experience, which is the pain of a parent who has to bury their own child. Mary's grief was so great that there are some theologians that actually consider Mary to be the first martyr of the Christian tradition. Not because she was killed for her faith, but because to experience the loss of Jesus, not just as a friend or as a follower, but as a child, was so overwhelming that when she saw her son lifted on a cross of death, she was crushed alongside him. This is the reality of the kingdom of God, highlighted by our season of Advent. Before the healing, there is breaking. Before the sunrise is the dark night of the soul. Before the laughter are tears. This was the same woman who 30 years ago, as a young girl, had said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. We can see a little bit of her grief in this, uh, in this picture here, if we can show it. I didn't bring my app up. This is uh, one of the most famous portrayals, artistic portrayals of the Virgin Mary, we see it's called La Pieta. It exists in the Vatican. It was made by Michelangelo. What's remarkable about this is that you don't really see much of the face of Jesus. It's actually kind of blank and lifted at an angle to where we can't see it quite well. The focus of this is on the grief of a grieving mother. And it's it's heartbreaking. Grief is heartbreaking. The disruption of the kingdom of God is heartbreaking. Yet even as she held the body of her son, weeping over his suffering and eventual death, there was a resurrection coming. As there is for all of us. A resurrection not just for our bodies, which, let's be honest, sounds really great, but a resurrection of the hope that we had lost a long time ago through the experiences that we've attracted along the way, through the troubles that we've picked up piece by piece and moment by moment. Let me say this. Yeah, let me say this. If you can find anything relatable about the heartbreak of Mary about the suffering of a mother, about the weakness of being a child, about the fear of facing God's calling, or just if you feel like Mary in this sculpture 
holding the sadness of lost hopes and dreams, then understand this. If her hope led to better days, led to good news, the same will be said for you. Your sadness will turn to joy. Your weeping will turn to dancing. Maybe not today, but God is not asleep and he is not removed and he is not far from us. Gosh, I swear, every time those kids talk in the microphone, I'm like, I don't even want to preach anymore. They're just, not, they're just spitting gems over here. And they're like, well, Jesus is with me. Like, he's not like with me, with me, but he's here. It's exactly right. It's 100% right. Our promise is a good promise like that stupid digital alarm going off at 4 a.m. every morning when I couldn't sleep because I was too afraid. But that promise was always short-sighted. It was, it was a promise that lasted as long as it took for me to eventually have to go back to bed and pray that, you know, the demons wouldn't be as bad the next night, and they rarely weren't. It's not a promise that says, I'll get you through so that you can go back through it again. It's a promise that eventually we'll live in the light forever. And it's not just this brutal Tucson light. It's perfect light. It's glory. It's the light of healing after a life of heartbreak. It's the light of perfect, unconditional love that we can experience day after day. It's the light that sits alongside the women who know the pain of losing a child. It's the light that shares a scared little kid that he doesn't have to be afraid of evil things anymore. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for good news. It's hard to believe in it sometimes. It sure is. For the moments that we can't, would you give us something to hold in its place when we can't believe? Maybe just a good, steady longing for belief that just kind of stands in its gap until belief comes back and rests on us. Wherever we're at, whatever pain we're experiencing, whatever our heartbreak looks like right now, pray that you would uh, just give us hope, even if it's tiny, and I pray that it would grow like a really cool plant and just bear fruit and that you would feed us with that fruit and that even through heartbreak, we could still experience joy and that even with a million things all around us, our eyes could be fixed forward or even up where you are and around us and within us. So we thank you. You're good, you're better than we could imagine, and you're better than we could ever pay proper respect to. Help us to uh, remember, especially in dark times. In Jesus' name, amen.